Hi there, and welcome back to the Beyond Aromatics podcast. Today we interview Dr. Jessie Hawkins with the Franklin Institute on her research in aromatherapy regarding essential oils as endocrine disruptors. But more on that later. I wanted to talk to you about how you can help support research in aromatherapy by donating to our Crowd Rising campaign. This donation will help raise money for funding for the research that her team is doing, and they are looking to raise $25,000 by the end of June. Naha is supporting this funding campaign by offering benefits for those who donate. The minimum to donate is just $10, and if you donate any amount, you will be added to the email list to receive research updates whenever available. If you donate $25 or more, you will receive a coupon code for $10 off your next Naha membership renewal to be applied at time of renew, or if you're not an existing member, you will receive $10 off your new membership. The first 100 people to donate $100 or more will receive a free copy of Salvatore Battaglia's third edition of the Complete Guide to Aromatherapy. The first five people to donate $500 or more will receive a free ticket to the Beyond Aromatics 2020 conference in Salt Lake City, Utah. If you're planning on attending the 2020 conference as a vendor and donate $1,000 or more, you will be entered to win a free booth at the conference center. If you're planning to be a sponsor for the 2020 conference and donate $5,000 or more, you will be entered to win a Gold Leaf sponsor package, which includes admission for four guests to the conference, Gold Leaf listing and logo placement on all event materials, complimentary vendor table, full-page color ad in conference proceedings, two full-page color ads in Naha's Aromatherapy e-journal, Gold Leaf listing on conference website, primary placement of logo on event signage, logo on conference tote bag, your business flyer, brochure, flyer, or postcard, and product sample placed into the conference tote bag, a gold leaf logo recognition and promotional emails to Naha members and affiliates, and ease newsletter subscribers, promotions on Naha Facebook and Instagram, and a certificate of appreciation and verbal recognition at the Naha 2020 conference. Your contribution is important to the field of aromatherapy, and we appreciate any amount that you are willing to give. Hi everyone and welcome back. Today I'm here with Dr. Jessie Hawkins, who is a clinical researcher and the director of the Franklin Institute of Wellness. Her work focuses on the use of essential oils and other natural health products with an emphasis on clinical research regarding safety and efficacy of these products in pregnancy, 
children, and other understudied groups of people. She is currently leading a series of studies evaluating the claims that lavender and tea tree oils may cause prepubertal gynecomastia in boys. Dr. Hawkins, thanks for being with us here today um, and diving into this topic for us so we have a better understanding of why this is so important to our field and why what you're doing is so important to our field. Yeah, well, thank you for the opportunity to to talk about one of my favorite things. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I guess first things first, to understand why this is so important, can you give us some of the history on the original connection of these oils to the endocrine system and as endocrine disruptors? Right, right. So this is a situation that's been going back over a decade. Uh, A lot of people are aware of the first study that came out in 2007. Um, It was a kind of a combination study. There was a series of of case studies on some young boys who basically they they were prepubertal, which means gynecomastia is rare. It's very common to see that while children are experiencing puberty, and it's very common to see that in newborns, but it's not very common to see it in the in-between period. And their pediatricians diagnosed them with gynecomastia, and we're trying to figure out why it happens, because in most cases, we never do figure it out. Uh, Sometimes it can be indicative that something else is going on, something, you know, potentially serious, such as cancer. Um, But in a lot of cases, it's, it's just never, you know, figured out, it just goes away, and then they keep going. What is gynecomastia, just to explain it to some people who might just be hearing about this kind of stuff for the first time? Okay, yeah, good question. Um, So for gynecomastia, basically what what that term means is the presence of breast buds in males. And it actually is pretty common. Uh, Up to 90% of newborn babies have breast buds because of all of the hormones in the mom's body as she was, you know, gearing up for labor and birth. And so newborn baby boys might have a little bit of... uh, not exactly breasts, but a, a tiny amount of, of buds, you know, breast tissue that's there. Um, when boys are in puberty, because the hormones are all out of control, um, as they kind of come in and <laughs> in different levels and everything, then it's also very common up to half of boys during puberty develop some a little bit of breast tissue and it just naturally goes away. And then it also happens again later in life. Um, but it can also happen at other stages. And if it happens in between those known areas where the hormones are changing due to normal lifespans, um, then it usually means that there's something happening. Either there's an endocrine disorder uh, or they're reacting to a drug or medication or exposure, or in a lot of cases, it really is never determined why it's happening. Um, the The breast tissue is really small. So this is not just uh, kind of what we would typically see with weight. Um, I know, especially as kids are growing, you know, they grow up and then they grow out and, you know, <laughs> they can kind of fluctuate as they, as they're going through these growth spurts and growing in different directions. And so there can be um, just those, those healthy, you know, fatty stores that are happening in little boys. This is different. This is actually the presence of breast buds, breast tissue. So it's different from just that normal, you know, kind of development that we see happening. And so when that happens and it's diagnosed, then it usually is a condition where um, a lot of care providers will refer them out to an endocrinologist um, and they investigate further to find out what's going on just to make sure. And does it end up being that they have like higher estrogen or lower testosterone or is there 
um, actual like hormonal imbalances or? So that is a really good question. Uh, in interestingly enough, these case series and in a lot of the cases, they don't. Um, usually when they find some sort of a hormonal imbalance, then there is, again, something going on that they're able to pinpoint. Something is happening in the body. They've got this type of cancer or this endocrine disorder and, and things are out of whack. So one of the first things I'll do is, you know, conduct these tests to, to measure these levels. Um, but in a lot of cases, that's not it. And because it's so rare, we actually still have a lot of unanswered questions about how it works and, you know, when it occurs. That's why so many of the cases kind of just come and then they go away and they're never really, they, they remain a mystery. No one ever really answers why it happened because they don't have a change in those hormones in the body that are taking place. It, it, we haven't yet answered the question of why these are happening. So what do they directly relate the essential oils to then? A physician noticed that they were all using products that had lavender and or tea tree in the ingredient list. And so then he partnered with some researchers at the NIH in the environmental health department. And they tested some of these essential oils in the lab. And they found some very weak uh, estrogenic activity and anti-androgenic activity. And they published this in the New England Journal of Medicine. And so that was 2007 that all of this happened. And so it weak evidence in terms of causal effect, but obviously it was pretty groundbreaking and, and attracted a lot of attention because this is a, a pretty serious claim to make. Um, the thing is, it's it's kind of in the aromatherapy community been brushed off since that time. You know, that was a long time ago. There are some issues with, you know, implying causation from that. Let's ignore it and move on. The problem is that the scientific community has not been ignoring it and moving on. They've actually been building upon that initial study. So another uh, article or manuscript was published just a few years after the first one of a pediatrician who did an internal review. It, it wasn't really any uh, known research methodology. It was just kind of looking through his records and decided um, that he believed there was an association between lavender skincare products and the patients that he had with prepubertal gynecomastia. And then in 2015, uh, another group of care providers also had some boys with prepubertal gynecomastia and you know, because of what had already been published, asked about exposures to lavender. And this was a very similar study to the original 2007 study in that they also then added a lab component to this kind of case series. And they actually confirmed that the products contained lavender because that was one of the questions with the first study was, you know, did they just claim to contain lavender or do they really contain lavender? And in this case, all three of the boys were exposed to lavender. Tea tree wasn't involved in that second group. And then last year, early 2018, all of this really came out again because the NIH researchers from the original study led by uh, a new member of the team conducted another laboratory study. And this time they kind of expanded the reach. So the original claim was that these two essential oils are causing prepubertal gynecomastia and boys. And that was kind of the extent of it. These two oils, that one outcome, the end. This one dramatically expanded it because they started looking at the chemicals that are in those oils. So instead of looking at the whole oils, they looked at 
the common chemicals that we find in lavender and tea tree. And then they looked for endocrine disruption activity and they found varying levels of endocrine disruption activity and then concluded that because these ingredients are in 65 different essential oils, then essential oils as a whole have potential to have endocrine disruption activity in everyone. Um, so now it's it's really been dramatically expanded and built upon, um, which is also why it's time to to act, <laughs> why it's time to investigate this further and do something about it. Um, and I think as people who work in aromatherapy notice that, um, and I kind of looked into that study where they just use, they drew out specific chemical constituents that, that we are familiar with. Um, mm -hmm. And we kind of know that using them separately and using them all together um, in essential oil works differently, right? Is that part of some of the problems with some of the research? It is. Um, the reason, and I've spoken with the researchers at the NIH who did the most recent study, and one of the reasons they pulled out those chemicals was basically building upon the belief that these whole essential oils are causing it so they could pinpoint what within the essential oils might have endocrine disruption activity. But then there's that secondary factor where once you start linking it to the chemicals, then you have the potential to link it to multiple different essential oils. So we've got a whole kind of group of research that's really just moving forward with this idea. Um, but one of the flaws, one of the biggest flaws is that they're continuing to evaluate this in the lab. And we still have not yet established any sort of link within the human body. Um, so what something does in a lab, of course, is a very different environment and setting than what something can actually do in the human body. A lot of stuff happens in a lab. And what are they testing on in the lab in particular? The researchers that are, that are doing the lab research are researchers who are endocrinologists uh, in particular. And so these are researchers that study things like BPA and other things that are in the environment. It's actually in the environmental health division of the NIH that this is happening in. Um, and they, they're basically taking the essential oils and or the chemicals, depending on the study, and running it through the same process they do other chemicals or other substances that are in the environment. Uh, such as, you know, BPA is, is a common one. They've researched a lot. So they take cell lines um, that would be responsive to this kind of behavior and just test to see uh, both if this activity exists and then also the extent to which it exists. So what happened immediately, like in the aromatherapy community in 2007? Did anybody, what was the response from from people working and doing research in aromatherapy then? Because, I mean, we've been using essential oils and or lavender especially um, way before then. And right. anything to report until 2007? Right, right. Um, the, there, was, there were a lot of letters to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine uh, from the aromatherapy community and the herbal community as a whole. Um, a lot of complaints. And most of it had to do with how the study was interpreted. Uh, this, the study kind of followed pretty typical, you know, case study protocols. You know, when we're doing a case study, that, that clearly does not establish causation. A case study is just, look at this weird case that I found. This is bizarre. Someone should research this further. Um, but the conclusion that people came to of, you know, look at this single kind of anecdotal situation, therefore let's, you know, extrapolate that and apply it to everything, that was really 
the issue. Um, and so I, there wasn't really any additional research conducted. In fact, the, the original uh, study concluded, the, the final sentences of the study are, until epidemiologic studies are performed to determine the prevalence of gynecomastia associated with these exposures, the community should be aware of this. Um, but that wasn't done. So other than the letters to the editor and gen just kind of a general moving on, then there really hasn't been a lot that has happened within the community in terms of what do we do with this? I guess moving forward, what, what kind of studies are you going to look into to do or what kind of studies would be required to, to look more into this matter? So what we have, if we, if we kind of take a look at what we have, we've got two case series. So six people with what's essentially anecdotal evidence that's just been evaluated and studied and written up. And then we've got those two lab studies that are kind of different in how they operate. And so in any sort of environmental exposure, if we just take this and look at the process that exists currently within scientific research, you know, what do we do if we think an ingredient in skincare might have endocrine disruption activity, then we're supposed to take it out of the lab. Uh, because at this point, we, we've got a couple of studies that say, okay, fine, in a Petri dish, this can happen with isolated chemicals or with whatever. Um, what is actually going on within the human body? And we use the field of epidemiology for that because that is the study of exposures in relation to disease. Um, so that's the kind of the tool that we use to answer questions about whether or not an exposure of any sort in the environment or in a personal care product or a food or whatever it might be can cause a certain disease. And this is the same kind of field of science that has told us, you know, lead exposures in children can lead to cognitive impairment or radon gas in your home can cause cancer. So there's an established set of procedures to follow here to actually follow up on a claim, you know, such as what they found in the lab and determine is this real or is this not real? Is this something that's just happening in the lab? And so one of the types of epidemiological studies that we use is called analytical studies. And these test a specific hypothesis between an exposure and a disease. So the exposure being these essential oils and the disease being prepubertal gynecomastia or even endocrine disruption as a whole. Um, and then there's two types of analytical studies that we use, and the type that we use really depends on what our research question is. So the one type that everyone is familiar with is the clinical trial. And the clinical trial is what will compare drugs and treatments. So let's say we already have a child with lead exposure and, and cognitive impairment, then a clinical trial will tell us if this drug or this treatment will you know, cure that or have some sort of efficacy there. Well, that's not the question that we're asking. The other type of analytical study that we conduct is what we call observational studies. And this is where we are comparing exposures to a substance that is suspected to be toxic or harmful in some way. And so with a clinical trial, we actually control the study much more. We design the entire thing. This is how we're going to randomize the people into two groups. This is the intervention. This is how we're going to control it. This is how we're going to measure it. And then, you know, contrast those outcomes statistically. With 
an observational study, we don't intervene and intentionally expose people to something because that's unethical. Um, we basically let a natural experiment take place. So some people are naturally going to be exposed to this and some people are not. So people are not randomized to one of the groups by us as the researchers. They're randomized naturally by their own choice. And so, of course, there are going to be some differences there, and it's a little bit more work on the back end that we have to account for. People who are using essential oils might have some demographic differences than people who are not. Um, but these take advantage of that naturally occurring experiment to accomplish the same outcome, to determine whether or not there is some sort of a relationship between exposure to this substance and this particular outcome. And so of those types of studies, we're actually conducting two completely different types of studies. Uh, one of them is a case control study, which is the type of study that you would use if the outcome is really rare. And of course, prepubital gynecomastia is incredibly rare. <laughs> it's not something that happens. Um, so that is the most appropriate research methodology to determine, is this exposure linked to that outcome or not? <laughs> But because of the research last year, we have added another study onto that, a cross-sectional study, and that type of study evaluates prevalence of a certain outcome within a specific population. And that goes back to that call to action in the 2007 study until epidemiologic studies are performed to determine the prevalence associated with these exposures. And so that, that one's going to evaluate not just the prepubertal gynecomastia component, but we're going to expand it across the board to all endocrine disruption. So we're also looking at precocious puberty in little girls and any other endocrine-related outcome that ch children can experience. And that way, it, it really takes a more robust, comprehensive look at this question uh, with the best form of scientific evidence that can be produced. Wow, that seems like a lot to put together. <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, how long do you expect this kind of study to take place? Because I mean, if you're looking at, you know, the puberty years of kids and stuff like that, that could that could have some stretch, right? Right. So we are, the first thing that we actually had to do in order to accomplish this was to create a way to measure exposure. Because we've got to measure throughout childhood up until we're certain they have hit puberty so that we can completely, you know, capture all the cases that might exist. Um, so we're going back over a span of 15 years and measuring all of the potential exposure to lavender and or tea tree oil, not just in personal care products, but also for medicinal purposes, aromatherapy purposes, anything else that, you know, you can use essential oils for a lot of different things. Um, and so the entire project on our end uh, is a two-year project, and we started it last fall, actually, and it's actually progressing a lot faster than we had originally planned. Uh, it's coming together really quickly, and that, that kind of that first step of the project that was going to be the longest part of the project was developing how it was that we were going to measure exposure, because that's obviously the most important thing here. If, if we're testing theories about exposures producing outcomes, we've got to be certain, you know, that someone was exposed and if they were exposed, then how much they were exposed. And that's a, a whole other complicated uh, Sounds like field. That. Yeah. <laughs> and are you so, measuring ways that way they, 
works those like topical versus someone who yes use lavender and things like exactly that. so what we've done is we've actually created a really robust measurement instrument that will tell us the type of exposure they had all the way down to the brand so we'll know exactly you know if it was a homemade product or if it was a, a plain essential oil product from a certain brand or if it was a a product purchased in the grocery store all the way down to the brand and the actual product. So we'll know they're using, you know, so-and-so's body butter, you know, and then, and then how much lavender it has in it or how much tea tree it has in that. Uh, we're also measuring the, the total quantity. So are you using one or two products or, you know, is everything that you use from your deodorant to your lotion containing lavender and then also that wash off leave on. So that'll give us not just a yes or no, they were exposed or unexposed, but because these claims are indicating that the exposure and the outcome are dose dependent, then we will be able to evaluate that. Because if there is a relationship, then the people who are using five products with lavender that are leave on are going to be the place that's going to be where we see this outcome. Um, so this will give us a really comprehensive view of that. And so we had to create that instrument and then we had to test it within a human population to make sure that it works. And then the normal process, you, you do that, you test it, and then you improve upon the instrument so that you can hit minimum standards that are necessary to use it. Um, but we actually hit it out of the park with the first uh, development and found that we have a really robust instrument. It's really comprehensive and it exceeds all of the standards for high quality research testing. So we're able to move on into actually, you know, collecting data and working with the epidemiological study a lot sooner than we expected. Um, so in terms of, and just for um, anybody's sake who's interested in this study and interested in donating, what kind of things are, uh, is the funding going to go towards at this point? So we have a really kind of, because it's so uh, complex and there are so many different parts to it, basically we're looking at it as three separate studies. So there's the development of the measurement instrument, which is we finished, and then the case control study, and then the cross-sectional study. So with that entire project, then the total budget for that is actually several hundred thousand uh, where we're looking at everything from submitting all of the study designs to ethical review committees, because you are not legally supposed to be collecting data on people to use for scientific purposes without having an ethical review board evaluate what you want to do, how you're going to protect their data, how you're going, especially working with children. As soon as you throw children into the mix, mm -hmm. even though we're not actually interacting directly with the children, we're just pulling medical records we still have to have not just the parental consent, but the child's consent as well, um, that they agree to participate in this. And so all of that has to be reviewed by a committee and then updated regularly with documentation that we are doing exactly what we said we were going to do to protect those participants. Um, then we're required by law to store all of those data for a certain period of time, uh, just kind of like you store your taxes just in case of an audit. Um, usually you're just storing it, but you know, also in case you need to do that. Um, we've hired outside consultants who are completely unrelated to the essential oil industry to kind of come in and cross check all of the coding for all of the analysis and um, all of the manuscripts and all of that that come through the work to confirm that um, we again have that kind of fully independent audit 
so that there are no conflicts of interest anywhere in the study so that it is achieving the highest methodological quality available. Um, then there's just practical fees for things such as uh, transmission of the data in a secure way that meets the requirements that we have to meet and storage of those data. Um, and then all the way to the very end, things such as we would love to be able to um, publish these because there are so many different projects, there are actually quite a few publications coming out of this project. And we would love to be able to publish as many of them as possible open access so that everyone can access the entire manuscript. And what a lot of people don't know is uh, the thing that determines whether or not a study is open access or if you have to pay to access the study is whether or not the researchers have actually paid for you to access the study. And it's several thousand dollars for every single manuscript. And um, so, I mean, even that can vary quickly if their five manuscripts can add up to fifteen, twenty thousand dollars just to make them all open access. Um, so all of those little things <laughs> kind of add yeah. up very quickly. Um, on our end, we've donated all of the, the payroll for the researchers and the assistants and the time and basically everything that we can uh, on our end. Um, but then a lot of it is what we call flow through costs going to the different places, the publishers and the reviewers and all of that kind of good stuff. So you're looking into this, but isn't there already some type of evidence that shows oils like lavender and tea tree are, are generally safe? Is this something that you guys are trying to even further establish that or is it, or you're looking for further research to, to help the case in one way or the other? Um, but isn't there already information out there? You would think so. <laughs> Um, the, the strongest argument that we have is that we would be seeing with the increase of usage of essential oil that we've seen over the last decade or two decades, that we would see an increase in these endocrine disruption outcomes. Um, but in terms of actually taking that perception that we have, that there is no link and actually producing concrete data that confirm that, we don't have anything. Uh, we don't have, no one has actually evaluated the outcomes related to the children who are exposed to all of these ingredients. We're using them because they've been used for thousands of years and because we've never experienced anything different. Um, but in terms of actually putting that down into evidence that we can then present to substantiate that perception, that's never been done before. Um, and that was one of the reasons that we were so willing to undertake this project is because, you know, this is something where we've got thousands of years of people being exposed to, you know, lavender as a whole. And the essential oils have been used in children, you know, for quite a while. And we don't see, you know, a very clear, obvious connection. So we really want to dig into the data and and analyze it statistically and, and either confirm or deny that our perception is correct. So are you guys receiving any backlash for looking into this or I guess reopening a wound that I guess a lot of people assume that was closed? We are. <laughs> um, yeah, you have to have thick skin to be a researcher because taking the, the concept of, you know, well, everyone knows this is the case and then actually substantiating what everyone thinks they know. Um, can, you know, again, reopening a wound is a, a great way to describe it. Um, it. It can hit people personally, you know. Um, and so, yeah, there, 
of course, there there are always people. It really doesn't matter what our research question is. There there are always people who who don't like what we're researching or what we're finding. Um, but there's a really great comic that I I use it in all my research methods classes and I post it on social media a lot of what it's like to be a researcher. And it's a person sitting in front of their computer and they have an idea and it just kind of shows, you know, the light bulb idea and they smile. And then this kind of big, you know, blob in the background named data comes in and just whispers in their ear, no. Mm -hmm. And then you see their kind of frown. that that basically summarizes one simple little comic with just one word what it's like to be a researcher we we think we know so much and then we really start looking into the control data and sometimes we we find that we're wrong it's really humbling to be a researcher cuz we're often wrong <laughs> um so yeah so we do get get backlash for that being open to to being wrong um that that does offend people um but at the end of the day, if we are wrong, we want to find out that we're wrong and do better. And, and how, you know, that's how fields, especially scientific fields, move forward, is we have to constantly be evaluating what we think is accurate just to confirm that it's still accurate with the openness to, you know, be willing to grow and change and improve as new information comes to light. Right. You know, I, I went to an event maybe two, three weeks ago now, and one of the questions, it, it was a uh, health fair event, one of the questions someone came up to me and he's like, so what is the relationship to lavender oil and um, Mm. gynecomastia? And I was like, oh, wow, I was not expecting to get this (laughs) question today. Um, And I guess that kind of just shows the relevance or at least the relevance to people working in um, medically aligned fields. Yes. It is a big deal to them. There is some research in the contrary to um, what aromatherapists like to think and like to practice. No one has looked at this directly in it head on, maybe from the aromatherapy side of it, or kind of gotten the aromatherapy community to look into it from their side of things. And just to double check, like you said, mm-hmm. I mean, we want to know, we should confirm these things for ourselves so that we are making sure we're, we're ethical. Right, right. And especially you touched on with it, you know, being in the medical community as it stands right now, you know, if you go into the scientific literature and say, are these oils safe for kids? We now have, you know, a small little mountain of evidence that's saying or implying anyway, not saying anything conclusively, but implying that it might not be. And then on the other side of it, we basically have all of us who are in the industry saying, oh, no, it's fine. Trust us. And of course, we would not accept that from the pharmaceutical company or, you know, from any other industry. You know, if that were BPA, um, you know, we would say, you need to check into that and show me some evidence. Um, So I think, you know, since it is so many people have been using it in their practices for so long. Um, it's just a no-brainer to go ahead and say, "All right, we believe this to be the case. Let's let's see if evidence can substantiate this." Are there essential oils that do affect hormones? There are particularly chemicals in essential oils, which again, going back to the, you know, an isolated chemical is not a whole essential oil. Um, there are some chemicals that, again, primarily in laboratory studies, have been found to possess endocrine disrupting activity. And that's not too crazy because a lot of substances in nature have been found to possess that activity, especially in the lab. Um, But this is where that that kind of call to action of we have got to start getting this research out of the lab and into the human body. And, you know, 
it's exciting and fantastic. And I love it as much as anyone going, oh, wow, that, you know, that essential oil kills these cancer cells in the lab. That's so interesting or (laughs) whatever it might be. But there's such a huge disconnect between a Petri dish and a human body. And so, I mean, that's one of our biggest goals is saying what is taking place in the human body? In the human body, do we see these effects? And in terms of that, we don't see it. But I can't say with certainty that the reason we don't see it is because we're sure, you know, we have evidence that concludes that because there are so many questions about what oils do in the human body that we've just never explored. Right. And I think sometimes with the anecdotal evidence, um, you get to that problem where correlation doesn't always equal causation, just in general. So, you know, when when you're reading something, it's like these boys were using these, these topical creams or something that there are a lot of other chemicals in those besides just Mm -hmm. essential oil. And there's a lot of other environmental factors that affect it, not to mention genetics. Um, Right. It's so, uh, it's interesting that there is this correlation in between them. Um, and, you know, I'm excited. It was one of the first kind of things I learned about when coming into a, aromatherapy is that there was this these cases of um, back in 2007 of the gynecomastia in these kids. But it all seems very speculative. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, you know, I think that's something that I guess a lot of drugs in general, a lot of the pharmaceutical companies deal with anyways, with other side effects and drugs. Is this like normal for medical industry? It is completely normal. Yes. Um, in fact, most, most pharmaceutical companies or, you know, products, medical type products, um, actually spend significant amounts of their budgets answering questions like this. Is this possible? Is that possible? you know, what happens here. And those kind of stronger regulated industries actually don't have a choice. I mean, they wouldn't be able to let something like this go on that long. Um, not just public outcry, but the the regulations that they have available would say, you've got to explore this and you've got to provide some sort of evidence, you know, summary or conclusion here so that we can move on. Um, so this is something that this type of study and this type of question pops up all the time. And the types of studies that we're doing can say, yes, there's a relationship. We need to explore it and see if it's causal or no, there's no relationship here, guys. This, this is not something that is actually happening. You know, let's move on and start answering other research questions and studying other things instead of letting this just persist for another decade. Um, So yeah, it's, it's a very common approach and it's a very common type of research question. Um, I think that's just kind of some of the growing pains of the aromatherapy field that we're, you know, just starting to to see these and have to directly respond to them and answer them. Um, but as essential oils become, you know, even more commonplace or as they stay commonplace, I would not at all be surprised if we don't see claims like this pop up you know, in, with some other outcome and some other essential oil uh, because of that correlation and causation. You know, someone uses something and then this happens and they say, oh, that oil caused it. I'm sure of it. Yeah. And, you know, we can't be sure of it until we really get into the data and see. And it seems like tea tree and lavender are two of the most commonly found in like any skincare. You go to the grocery store and there and like half of the products in there, there's one of those or Pepper, yes, something like that. <laughs> they are <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, and with that being said, it's not 
you think about some of the other things that go behind it, like um, the efficacy of the sourcing of the oils. Could something mm-hmm. like that cause it? Is there so many minute details that go into it? And so it's interesting to to see what's going to come up in your research or what's going to play a role. I, I'm interesting to see the results. What what is the next phase or next step that you guys are looking into? I, I know you can only share so much, but right, right. So we are actually data collection is already underway um, for the two epidemiological studies. So once we have all of the data in um, and we have to actually, in, especially in order to conclusively say there's that if we don't find a link that that actually means something, then we had to conduct what's known as a power analysis to tell us how many children we have to study. Um, so once we hit those numbers where we can actually, you know, make scientific conclusions from these data that we have, then we can move into interpreting all of that and then preparing that for publication, which, like I said, is, is happening a lot faster than we, than we had anticipated. Um, but all of that is good uh, because then we'll have answers a lot sooner. Um, if we find a relationship, if we, if we find people that are using lavender are more likely to have this, then this is where the the robust quality of that measurement instrument comes into play. And we'll continue pursuing that to find out, okay, now we know that there is a connection between lavender or between tea tree. Which products? Are we seeing this only in soaps? Are we seeing it in lotions? Are we seeing it in this particular brand of product? You know, where are we seeing this? And then we can isolate it or we can also look at questions about the children specifically. Are we seeing it at a certain age group? Are we seeing it in a certain race or a certain region or a certain, you know, comorbidity or any of these demographic or health history factors about the children? And then we'll be able to pinpoint down, you know, not just this relationship, but, you know, okay, this is existing and it's happening primarily in boys of this age, of this race in this region, and primarily when they use this specific product or this specific combination of products. And then those additional analyses, and the great thing about that is we wouldn't have to collect any more data. We would just do another study on the data we've already collected. Um, So we'd be able to do that rather quickly and then kind of isolate and pinpoint what's going on. And then if necessary, then we would actually take it back into the lab and start evaluating those particular products and saying, okay, is it the type of lavender that you're using or the type of tea tree that you're using or Um, I know one thing that's been proposed is the storage containers. As you're getting it from your supplier, maybe that's a problem. Um, There are a lot of questions and a lot of speculation about if it's the quality of the oil or if it's been adulterated or or whatever else it might be. Um, But, I mean, that would just be kind of a, a shot in the dark until we actually can pinpoint what is actually taking place. If there isn't anything at all, right? Right, right. Um, And without a relationship, then then, you know, case closed. And then as it stands right now, we have the strongest form of evidence that we can produce that shows we did, we did not find a relationship and we tried using every bit of scientific methodology we have available to us for this research question using two completely separate studies. And so then we're going to have, you know, pretty heavy weighted scientific evidence that says, let's move on and test other, other hypotheses and theories now. Where can people find out more about this or can people find out more about things you guys do? 
So the best way to stay up to date with this, of course, is to get involved with the crowdfunding project. Um, there are some amazing gift packages that I've noticed you put together for everyone who does get involved. And of course, we'll be um, sending updates. I know you've done a lot of work to make sure that everyone who contributes is able to, to stay involved and see what their contribution produced here. Um, so that's, the, of course, the best way to get involved. And also, if you want to see other studies that we do or findings that we have, um, those are all available on the website if you click on the research button at franklininstituteofwellness.com. Uh, very top menu in the homepage is a research button. It's also on every page. So however, however you get to the website, it's going to be right there in the top right. And that takes you to updates on this kind of group of studies, updates on other studies that we conduct, um, ways that you know people can get involved either as a participant of a clinical trial or uh, you know any number of ways to get involved. There's all kinds of information on there that that'll point you in the right direction. Thanks for being out here today. I know um, we'll being out here giving uh, answering the. the <laughs> um, I know we'll be back with some more research type segments from you guys so and of course we'll be back with a i'm sure a segment on how this research is progressing and what we're doing mm -hmm. with this um so thanks for taking that time and thanks for you know everything you're doing for this community because we, the research is part of the the problem with some of the stuff we're doing and it's definitely some obstacles for other things and you guys are tackling it everybody there at the franklin institute is tackling tackling it head on and we're really excited to have you guys and have you guys a part of NAHA. Um, so again, thank you for your time. Yeah, well, and thank you so much for letting me again talk about my favorite thing. So I look forward to doing it again. <laughs> All right, Desi, have a good day. You too.